Hey there, language lovers. It's Shannon. Excited to have you join us for another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. In this episode, Benny and I talk to Judith Mayer about learning multiple languages, motivation, and the power of working on specific language projects. Some of the new things we discuss are how Judith learned Esperanto online, how she prepared to give a speech in Indonesian, how to get comfortable learning a language outside of the European language family, how learning languages has opened up so many opportunities for Judith, picking resources based on your needs as a learner, and her work developing language learning books and courses. As always, we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review. It not only lets us know what you like best about the Language Hacking Podcast, but it also helps other language learners like yourself find us. You can share your thoughts with us at languagehacking.com slash review. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com slash 29. Now, on to our interview with Judith. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Language Hacking Podcast episode. Today, we have uh, Judith Mayer as a guest, and Judith is one of the most accomplished polyglots I've ever come across. And I originally met her in an Esperanto gathering, I believe, wasn't it? Is, wasn't that right, Judith? Yeah, yeah, we met through Esperanto. Mm-hmm. And Judith has, um, let me see if I can get this right, she's like experienced in endless languages, but on her website lists 14 that she would speak, she's uh, written several books and I've actually used her um, her script hacking book to help me with my Arabic project and I found it a very unique and uh, interesting approach. And she has a very wide range of languages, a lot of non-European languages. The, the list, I think, is, co- is quite long of her language accomplishments, which is one why I really wanted to have her on the podcast. So how are you doing otherwise uh, today, Judith? Hey, um, thank you. I'm, I'm fine. Thank you for the very kind introduction. I uh, do not consider myself uh, as... Uh, as one of the most accomplished polyglots, like, uh, for example, Richard Simcord and so on. Um, but I have, um, yeah, I've done some interesting projects, uh, especially with non-European languages. And uh, I think I can contribute something to the conversation. Absolutely. So before we get into it, I most want to hear your background. And um, obviously you're from Germany. And I, I want to hear, like, how did you get inspired to get into languages? And what's your story that... Uh, got you to where you are today? Yeah, so uh, unlike um, many people, I guess, um, I do not come from a multilingual household. My parents actually only speak German, not even English. And so I'm not quite sure how I, as a child, developed this fascination with foreign countries, foreign languages, and so on. But I do remember that uh, at some point I was uh, developing like um, uh, secret writing systems uh, and um, even a secret language at one point. And, but uh, actually, foreign languages, I only started uh, learning them at school. You know, the typical German school, you start learning at, uh, English uh, at the age of 10. Uh, and then um, two years later, you get to choose uh, between French and Latin. And at that point, I was already certain that I wanted to learn all the languages in the world. Uh, so I chose Latin because it would help me uh, learn more languages later. 
And um, at that time, I was also already reading some popular science books about uh, linguistics uh, from the local library. Um, one was called Did the Neanderthal Men Speak English? And, you, you know, it's, it was just a very light touch on a lot of different topics of uh, linguistics, like uh, what is the proto-language uh, and how do languages evolve? And what about Chinese characters? And what about Klingon and Esperanto and so on? So that's how I got in involved in Esperanto as well, because they mentioned that Esperanto is the constructed language that has had uh, the most uh, success out of uh, constructed languages. Uh, with about uh, three, 3 million uh, speakers uh, worldwide and that it also uh, helps you learn other languages, that it's like um, much, much easier than um, non-constructed languages. So, yeah, so I started learning uh, Esperanto uh, online through uh, a correspondence, like an email course. Um, and at school, I continued with French and Italian and I was basically set. I, I just, you know, Esperanto gave me the confidence that it was possible to learn a language online and that it was possible to learn a language uh, on your own or only with the occasional help of uh, a mentor uh, who'd correct some stuff that you sent them, but otherwise um, taking responsibility for your own learning. And uh, this is something that uh, I applied uh, to Chinese before uh, graduating from high school. I started learning Chinese, um, also teaching myself. I think that one of the things that's most interesting about your approach to language learning is that you often have very specific projects in mind when you start learning a language. Uh, for example, I remember with Japanese, there was a certain TV series that you wanted to be able to understand. Can you talk a little bit more about what some of these very specific language goals have been for you and why you specifically work towards those things rather than looking at language learning in the broader sense saying, I'm just going to learn X language? Well, I did some of that. Uh, for example, with uh, Swahili, I one day I said, "Okay, I'm going to be fluent in Swahili," and um, I took uh, I took a course, uh, an Asimil course, which is very good. It goes up to uh, upper, upper intermediate level for Swahili, and I just did the whole course, and I was happy. But uh, you see, I for me, I, I this um, focus that I now have uh, upon these particular projects is basically an admission that. I know I'm not going to um, have the patience uh, to study a language uh, for two or three years and not get distracted with other languages and other priorities uh, in my life. And I just know that I have to have some kind of success, um, an experience of success before uh, those two or three years uh, are up. Uh, I have to find a way to integrate these languages uh, into my life. Otherwise, they will take backseat to revising another language that I've already learned or trying another new one, which looks uh, cute right now. Um, I have this passion for all of the languages, but I know that um, my, my ability is limited. So um, I did these kind of projects. And for Japanese, it was like I found this uh, TV series uh, called uh, Hikaru no Go, which is about uh, a boy that, um, well, there's there's the, the ghost of, uh, of a professional, of a really, really good uh, historic uh, Go player that um, haunts him. And uh, so he starts to, to learn Go and uh, to become really good at Go and so on and so on. And I'm also a Go player, so it was a really interesting story for me. And I just wanted to be able to understand it without the subtitles, because the subtitles were fan-made and completely awful and sometimes useless. So, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, so this is the kind of project that you can do in a short period of time, it doesn't take uh, two or three years to start understanding Japanese TV series as long as you're ready to completely focus 
uh, on this uh, one thing. This means that in the case of uh, your goal being uh, listening comprehension, understanding a TV series, uh, you want to discard any thought of learning how to write the language or read the language. This is like a huge difficulty when you're learning Japanese. And um, if you go through like a general course and you try to learn everything at once, reading, writing, speaking, listening, all at once, then yeah, it will take two or three years until you start to understand uh, Japanese TV. But if you focus just on listening and just on this narrow field of vocabulary, which is um, the vocabulary used in the series, then you can get quite far uh, in just a month or a few months. Uh, you understand all of it. So that's what I like to do. And for Indonesian, for example, I had this um, speaking competition that was organized in my city. And I've always wanted to, be, uh, to participate in the speaking competition. And I didn't know any uh, Indonesian yet, but I knew it was one of the easiest languages to learn. So uh, I just um, like uh, drew out a speech that I would want to give about how to learn languages. Uh, and uh, for uh, several weeks, I just practiced all the vocabulary around giving the speech about languages and how to learn languages and so on in, in Indonesian. Um, and um, that was my first step to learning Indonesian. Now, right now, I'm part of uh, conversational lessons of Indonesian and I'm making much more progress uh, on the language as a whole. But I needed this first experience, this first thing that I could do that would make me feel like I'm getting somewhere. Yeah, definitely. Also with Japanese, it's, it's not that I wanted to stop after learning um, how to understand this one TV series. Um, I also uh, did some conversational lessons of uh, Japanese. I learned how to read it and so on. I, I visited uh, Japan last year. Um, so it's not that um, I stay with one thing, but I use it as a, a stepping stone. Because now I'm able to, to keep watching this TV series uh, and understand it. And it will, it is something fun that I can do in Japanese uh, when I don't have the mental energy to um, use a, a course book. Uh, when I don't have the mental energy to study vocabulary, I can just uh, sit down, watch half an hour of Japanese TV. Um, and I think that's really important to have this kind of activity for your language, especially if you're going to be learning it for three years or something. You need to have some activity that you can already do that's fun, that's pure fun, that's not super intensive and difficult. And it's interesting because you've mentioned quite a lot of non-European languages. And I know you have experience in European languages and Esperanto, which is um, very much related to a lot of European languages and its vocabulary and such. But a lot of people listening may feel the idea of taking on a non-European language as super intimidating. And um, you just mentioned something like Indonesian is among the easier languages. So what do you tell people who feel this intimidation to try to expand into a language that is outside of the typical European languages that they tend to learn? How would you encourage someone uh, with those doubts? It's, it's really about uh, your motivation. I mean, if I wanted to learn, say, Frisian, given that German is my native language and I speak fluent English, this would be no challenge at all for me, right? But I just don't have any uh, desire to learn Frisian and it would be torture to, for me to try to learn it. So, whereas Indonesian, it's shiny, it sounds so cute, I love it. So, <laughs> that's what I'm learning. You, you need to have um, this uh, the, the desire for it, and then anything else is uh, secondary. And also, for me, um, it got to a point where learning non-European languages was actually easier than trying to add on another European language, because um, I had a lot of problems with interference. So, um, knowing Latin, French, uh, Italian, and Spanish, I was tempted to do Portuguese because it's like 
it's basically vocabulary that you already know from one of the other languages, right? But that can trip you up really badly. So that uh, even my Spanish is more of uh, Italian rather than pure Spanish. And I knew that with Portuguese, it would just make the thing worse. So I decided instead of doing Portuguese, uh, I do Greek or I do Indonesian or Hebrew, whatever. Um, it has to be different enough in order to be able to learn it. I think it's really interesting because language interference is something that a lot of learners worry about. But on the other end of the spectrum, with all of the vastly different languages you've learned from, you know, very different language families, how do you hold all of this information in your head, the completely different grammar rules, the unique writing systems, and all of these things that you come across with learning languages that are so different from one another? Well, it helps that they are different because uh, if you tell me treno, uh, uh, I cannot immediately tell, is this uh, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, or all of them, right? Because uh, it just sounds like the kind of word that you would have in uh, all three of these languages. But I know that uh, in Spanish, like it's 10. So um, it, it takes extra effort to remember this. Whereas uh, uh, if you take Croatian, uh, flag, uh, it also means train, um, it has like no relation to that. And that makes it easier. Um, but you do need uh, to um, try to learn uh, words in word families. Um, I mean, especially words um, that are uh, gra grammatically related. I found that Esperanto's uh, affix system is a huge help in this, uh, especially for languages uh, like Indonesian and uh, Swahili, because they also have a lot of affixes that they use in order to create uh, words from the same root or from a similar root. And you can go from Balajar to Mangajar to whatever. It's, um, it's, it's this, um, system where uh, you add a syllable and the word becomes uh, a verb. You add another syllable and it becomes the opposite. You add a different syllable, it becomes a person who does this thing. Uh, so all these uh, relations between words to go from to teach to teacher to teaching to classroom in some um, in some languages the word for classroom is related to the word for to teach um, this kind of thing this is something that you can find all across the world's languages and uh, it's actually really fascinating to me the kind of connections that uh, they have made and um, it means that you don't have to learn so many word groups as long as you're ready to look into why the languages why the words are built the way they are and uh, you mentioned previously that motivation has to be uh, central to your learning and um what has been the kind of motivations that you have um, taken for learning some of your languages and what have been the most surprising benefits that you've gotten that you weren't expecting after you've learned a language? <laughs> it's, um, well, um, I noticed that uh, growing up, I was uh, really much more of an idealist when it comes to like, uh, learning languages. So I would learn a, a lot of languages that um, I did not really have use for. Like uh, Esperanto, I didn't ex actually expect to be able to speak it with people because uh, 3 million people on a globe of 7 billion is um, still quite very few people, right? Um, but actually, it has been uh, super useful for, for me in that I got several job offers this way. I got uh, part of some really interesting projects. I got some free travel. Um, it helped me with my other languages. So it's um, like the benefits come after you've uh, invested time into a language. And even with uh, with Greek, I had opportunities that I never would have had uh, otherwise. Greek is not um, one of the most useful languages. If you look at uh, online advice, like which languages should you learn for uh, to, to have a better job or something. Um, but any language um, 
will be an, uh, an advantage. I think there's a, like a, a balance between how many people are learning a language uh, and um, how much of a benefit uh, you will get from it. So let's say Chinese. There are a lot of articles saying you will get a lot of benefit out of learning Chinese because there are so many people speaking it. But so many people speaking it also means that there are so many people learning it. So I would not say that necessarily Greek is a worse choice, modern Greek, to learn modern Greek is necessarily a worse choice economically than learning Chinese because there are less people that learn it. So you stick out more if you actually speak the language and you get some opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have had. I don't know. <laughs> I don't have the figures for that. I just go with the, the languages that interest me. And it could be for any reason at all. Like for, for Greek, it's just the country that uh, fascinated me, the, the story, the politics, the history, everything. And um, for Swahili, I didn't have any reason beyond just finding it very pretty and wanting to see what the uh, what this grammar is like, because they have a really uh, different uh, grammar compared to uh, European languages. and. For Finnish, I did a challenge with some friends. We all decided we wanted to do a challenge and learn a language that none of us would have any advantage in learning. Indonesian was also a challenge. Uh, Japanese was this uh, TV series. Chinese, I got into Chinese because of the, the writing system. It's so pretty. I mean, have you seen it? You can, of, of course, sorry, <laughs> of course you've seen it. But uh, I mean, have you tried to like trace the, the characters? It's almost like a Zen activity, uh, study vocabulary, just uh, put on some nice uh, music and um, just spend an hour just tracing characters. And it's a um, super meditative uh, thing to do. Um, I don't know. It's um, I, f I find languages in general fascinating. And then there are some that pop, up, uh, pop out to me because of something happening in my life, like hearing about a competition or like, uh, going on a trip um, or having some friends that uh, speak the language. This is usually a very good motivator to have friends that speak the language because uh, it makes me feel closer uh, to them. And it also gives me the opportunity to practice the language much uh, earlier than I otherwise would. And of course, trips are very good motivation. If you're going somewhere, you definitely don't want to be um, like unable to, com uh, to communicate. <laughs> I mean, if, if you're the kind of person that does not believe in language learning, someone who's not a polyglot, someone who doesn't think it's necessary, of course, you're also right. If you're a monolingual English speaker, say, uh, you say, okay, I can travel the world with English, I can go to Thailand, I can go to Africa, I can go to South America. Of course you can. Um, so it's not like there is any really compelling lang uh, reason to, uh, to learn uh, any language uh, anymore as long as you're ready to just be a tourist when you're going to these countries you can get by with english you don't need anything more than english in most places but um, learning the language i think a, a polyglot will find uh, these uh, reasons to learn languages wherever polyglot goes it's like um, a train lover if you think of people who really love traveling in trains now, there are a lot of places that they could be going by car or by, or by plane instead. But if you're a train lover, you're going to go there by, uh, by train. And similarly, if you're going to a place uh, that speaks another language, you're going to learn the language uh, or at least some of it. It's just something that polyglots do. It's not that you don't have other options. Given that you speak now more than a dozen languages to different degrees, what does that look like for you? Um, you have like this initial kickoff of motivation for learning the language. Does that sustain you through continuing them or does that kind of evolve as you progress through the language? Yeah, sometimes I find that um, 
knowing the language is not actually uh, that what I, what I expected it uh, to, uh, to be, or that I cannot do the things that uh, I was expecting to be able to do. Uh, this was one of my issues with uh, Arabic. I started and stopped learning Arabic uh, quite a few times, and uh, the biggest issue is that if you're learning uh, modern standard Arabic, uh, you cannot um, have like easy informal conversations. They will always feel stilted. And if you're learning uh, Egyptian Arabic, which I've also done for a while, or any of the, the local versions, you can have these informal conversations, but you cannot read a book or understand the, t uh, the news on TV. And for me, this is um, these are like two of my favorite activities when I get to the intermediate stage. It's just to have a lot of informal conversations and to uh, read a lot of news and similar things. Um, so not being able to do both of these things with Arabic definitely put a downer on, on my study of that uh, language because I would have to learn two languages at the same time in order to, to do the usual activities I do at an intermediate level. But um, yeah, it's, it also depends. Um, sometimes uh, I expect to use a language and then I don't um, or not as much. And sometimes I use it a lot more than I expected to. Uh, for example, I was invited to a conference in Lithuania, and I learned. I decided that, given that this conference was in Esperanto, I didn't actually need to learn much uh, Lithuanian. But I decided to learn like 200 words uh, anyway, and um, my expectation was right because for the first uh, four days I was there, I spoke basically no in um, Lithuanian. But then on the last day, um, my host just um, explained the way to the airport uh, to me and uh, left me to, to go. And uh, I went to the bus stop that they had described and uh, there was a construction site and the bus wouldn't come uh, to the stop. Uh, so then uh, knowing even 200 words of Lithuanian became a lifesaver because uh, I was able to just ask people uh, where this uh, bus stop had moved to. And uh, I was able to understand uh, their replies uh, fast enough and to get to the right stop before missing uh, the bus and missing the flight. And it probably saved me several hundred euros that I would have spent on a, on a rebooking. And, I, uh, you know, I was reluctant to, to, use, to use Lithuanian at that point because I knew my Lithuanian wasn't very good. I tried with English and German, but these people didn't actually understand it. They were just, I, I suppose Russian might have worked, but I don't speak Russian. So... It was uh, suddenly the most uh, useful language uh, in the world at that um, at that particular moment. Uh, you always get surprised with the things that uh, can happen to you because of language. Also, I was invited to a conference uh, in Beijing um, as part of a delegation of uh, European Union uh, NGOs to talk about uh, social media in China. And uh, we had uh, a lot of... Um, presentations uh, and meetings uh, that were all in English and we had banquets. One of these banquets was with some really um, influential people in the Chinese uh, youth organizations. And uh, so at this, uh, at one of these banquets, I found myself next to the vice president of the all China youth uh, organization, like the, the big organization that has all the other youth organizations um, organized in it. and. Um, I spent like two hours uh, just talking to him uh, in Mandarin because he didn't speak any English. And later I found out that he had actually requested to be uh, sitting next to me because he didn't speak English and 
the um, interpreter was um, assigned to work with the with the president of the association. So basically, he didn't have another choice. Either he would have had to eat uh, silently, or he'd have to speak uh, Mandarin with me. I was the only one in the group that would be able to have a conversation with him. Yeah, I can I can only imagine the 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 many stories you would have of all the different opportunities from learning so many languages. But as well as that, some people who are listening who are into podcasts may recognize your voice from German Pod 101. So as well as expanding to all these other languages, I'm sure that these experiences have influenced how you've been able to present your own native language to help other people learn it. So what have you learned from learning foreign languages that have helped you become better at helping other people learn German? And what's your, um, what's your history with German Pod 101? Yeah, German Pod 101 was uh, one of the projects uh, I was involved in. I mean, not anymore for about uh, five years or so. I haven't uh, recorded any uh, new episodes uh, for them. But uh, for a while, I was um, uh, the main project manager and um, lesson writer uh, for them. And it was a really interesting experience uh, to, uh, to see German from the perspective uh, of a learner. And I applied what I could uh, for my own studies. I noticed that uh, you've done the same uh, for your language hacking books and you factor in conversations like um, uh, uh, conversations on Skype with phrases like, uh, I can't hear you, the sound is bad or something like that. Um, you know, uh, you, you use your own, um, your own experiences, the kind of phrases that you would have found useful and um, use these uh, to create uh, courses. So um, my courses are a lot more based on the useful um, parts of a language, getting people started uh, right away, um, uh, speaking very early, having vocabulary like that. Um, I tend not to teach um, like long lists of vocabulary like um, animals at the zoo or furniture or whatever, because um, most people don't spend much time talking about that. And one of the one of the things I, I really stick to is, for me, for me personally at least, is not to learn any vocabulary that I'm not going to use uh, within the next uh, three months or so. So if I see, if I go through a textbook, I'm actually quite critical and I strike out a lot of the words that they are trying to teach me because I know that um, they are not words that I'm about uh, to use within the next uh, months, within the next three months. Um, and... Um, I also do this uh, for the uh, German Pod 101 courses. I figure that if someone is an interior designer and they absolutely need to know all kinds of German words uh, for interior design within the next uh, few months, uh, they can uh, call up um, a vocabulary list for that uh, or use a dictionary. But that is not uh, the typical student that I have. And I want to teach uh, the words that are really common that everyone will need uh, to use. And um, also uh, the grammar that is really unavoidable until such time uh, as you really want uh, to dive into uh, grammar more, uh, more seriously and learn it in depth. But um, the podcast medium is, is generally a difficult um, medium for that anyway. So, yeah, I focused on um, giving people the tools that they need. And I created several kinds of um, series. Um, one series for people who are about to go to travel to Germany as a tourist and one series uh, for people that uh, are going to a language school in uh, in Germany because it requires different vocabulary. I mean, as a tourist, you need certain phrases and as uh, someone who is going to class, you need uh, different phrases 
and uh, there was even a, a serious plan for uh, people going to Germany to work. And we did an intermediate level uh, course like that, but not a beginner level course like that. And yeah, basically, um, this is also something that I can advise uh, that I can advise for any student is uh, to look for a language course that really has the situations that you need, because uh, there are different reasons to learn a language and different uses that you're envisioning for it. And if you look at a textbook and you look at the kind of dialogues that it has, you can figure out whom the the authors had in mind, whether they were thinking about someone working in that country with a lot of uh, work-related conversations, or they were thinking about uh, a tourist, um, or like uh, Benny's books are um, mostly, except for the later lessons, uh, thinking about someone learning a language uh, online. And you get a lot of phrases that you will uh, need online. So um, I think that it really helps uh, in, in terms of uh, being able to speak uh, earlier in your learning, to have conversations earlier, is if you find a course that, uh, that fits um, the kind of language, the kind of phrases and vocabulary that uh, you need. And for the big languages like Spanish, German, French, and so on, uh, you will find it very easy uh, to find uh, the perfect course that has the kind of phrases you need. And for smaller languages, uh, you have to uh, teach yourself or uh, use some extra um, help from native speakers uh, to get everything you need. But it's What's most important is to think about what you need and then to look for it and not to expect uh, the courses to already have it. In addition to working on German Pod 101, you've actually have done a lot to create resources for language learners, including your website, um, the script hacking series. What are some of the other sorts of things that you've worked on as far as language teaching? Well, I created a, um, a website for learning Chinese, which is called uh, learnu.com. So it's like um, you learn, except um, it's learn you and the you is spelled uh, Y-U, um, because that's the Chinese language, uh, the, the Chinese word for language. Uh, it's you. So um, that was my attempt uh, to use AI to uh, facilitate uh, language learning. And um, it was an interesting experience. It didn't really... Uh, get much uh, attraction, um, but um, I had fun creating it. And um, I worked on a bunch of um, uh, wiki books and I worked on a machine translation prototype and I worked on uh, Teach Yourself Complete Esperanto. Uh, I co-wrote this uh, book, which is a very complete uh, course, uh, more than 300 pages um, with uh, Tim Owen, uh, a great uh, co-author. Uh, that was uh, one of my more recent projects. Uh, so more recently is this uh, Teach Yourself Complete Esperanto book and the uh, script hacking courses. The script hacking ones are, well, they exist for seven um, languages or writing systems. And the idea is uh, to teach you how to read uh, the language without uh, teaching you the vocabulary or grammar. So this is ideal for tourists. Uh, say you're going to Moscow next month. And uh, you just want to be able to read the shop signs uh, or read uh, the signs at the train station to understand where certain trains are going uh, or the buses or metro stations. Um, there's a lot that uh, you uh, miss out on if you can't even decipher the alphabet. Um, and there are a lot of easy wins as well, because if you go into a pizzeria, even in Moscow, uh, you will find um, pizza margarita, you will find pizza salami, pizza vegetarianskaya. So even just being able to read uh, the Cyrillic alphabet is a huge win. 
uh, when you're traveling to a place that uh, needs it. And uh, so that is the main audience uh, of these books. Um, but it's also good as a first step uh, for people who are learning the whole language, who are intending to embark on a, on a, uh, on a complete course uh, of, uh, say, Hindi or Hebrew or Arabic or whatever, because I use a completely new um, method for, for learning. And um, I basically, I looked at a lot of uh, existing textbooks and I was very unhappy with the way they teach a foreign writing system. It's usually they give you a table full of letters uh, and tell you to memorize this table. And once you've done so, come back and do lesson one. That's basically the instruction you get. Maybe you get like three exercises or something. But um, it's really um, not brain friendly. Our, we know a lot more about how we learn to, uh, we should know better than to, to try to pass this off as teaching the alphabet. So what I'm doing is to teach every letter one by one uh, with uh, exercises uh, in between. So let's say I start with the letters uh, A and B, and after that, uh, I'll let you read uh, the word uh, ABBA, like the band ABBA. Um, and then I give you the letter N, and you can read um, uh, Nana, like um, the name and uh, banana and um, as you get more letters you're just able to read more and more and more words and all of the words will be familiar to you they will be the kind of words where you go like banana banana oh this is banana so it's like um always when you're practicing you have this feeling of uh, success like uh, little kids who are learning the alphabet and they look around town and they say oh Look, mommy, uh, this says Ford, this says Shell, this says, you know, they're reading everything they can see because everything uh, strikes a connection. Everything is um, exciting them to, to be able to understand something. And that's the kind of sense that I'm trying to convey with, uh, with this uh, script hacking series. Yeah, and I've I've uh, had the the luck to be able to use your script hacking series. And I definitely appreciated the, the use of cognates from um, words that I already knew that I could kind of piece it together and recognize it. And I think that, like you said, it's the, the teaching people through a more um, intense approach of that they would learn the characters through uh, native words in the language um, is, is something you have to get to eventually. But I think what I liked about script hacking, and I recommend it to anybody who's learning any language with different scripts, is uh, that you're not actually going out of your way to teach people vocabulary because that's not your goal. Your goal is to teach people how to read and they can read using words that they already recognize. So um, definitely a big fan of that approach. I found it very effective uh, with my uh, with my Arabic. Uh, yeah, thank you. And um, it does teach about uh, 600 uh, or 700 words. Um, so it, there's a lot more exercise. Um, there are a lot more exercises in this uh, book than uh, in your typical alphabet teaching uh, book. But out of those 600, 700 words, um, like half of them or so are uh, names of countries and cities and personal names. And only half or so are cognates that will actually um, be useful for, for you, like uh, the words for tea and banana and various other fruits and food and international words like taxi and internet. And it's useful to know um, that these words exist and how they're pronounced uh, in your target language. But yeah, they are just um, to help you get used to reading. So that um, when you come across a completely new word that um, tends to come up in lesson one of your course, uh, you won't be completely stumped and you actually have some kind of fluency in reading. 
I think fluency is another thing that's completely that's not covered uh, well enough uh, in typical courses uh, because uh, they give you this table of letters to learn, and after that they expect you to read uh, like a conversation consisting of eight complete sentences, and that's just not possible. It will take it will take you like one hour just to decipher that conversation if all you had uh, as reading practice uh, is like uh, two pages explaining the alphabet. Uh, you need some kind of um, familiarity with the, with the letters. You need uh, to practice uh, spotting them. You need to practice uh, piecing them together to create meaningful words. Uh, and that is uh, something that the script hacking method does uh, even for people who already theoretically know the alphabet, but practically take an extraordinary amount of time to read anything in that language. So if you just need a lot of reading practice to um, become more fluent in, say, reading Arabic or something, um, then this is also a method that you could try, just reading a lot of these uh, familiar words. Uh, okay, so uh, we'll be definitely sharing all of the links in our show notes to all of the projects that you've uh, we've been mentioning today. But out of curiosity, are there other things that you've been working on and what are your upcoming projects? Well, right now, my main focus is uh, my work with uh, DiEM25, uh, the Democracy in Europe movement uh, 2025. So it's not uh, really a, a language project, even though I do a lot of um, uh, language work there uh, as well, helping this movement become um, represented all across uh, Europe. With, and you know, we have uh, seven official languages um, in which we send out all of our materials and newsletters and so on. So um, that's really where um, what I spent most of uh, my time on. And then uh, I only just finished the script hacking uh, books, like seven script hacking books uh, earlier this year. Uh, so I'm taking a bit of a break from uh, preparing language uh, materials, but um, I will probably be back to write more of uh, these courses. I've already had uh, requests for Thai and Georgian and uh, other languages to create um, script hacking courses for them. Since this is the Language Hacking Podcast, we have one question that we like to ask every single one of our guests, and that is, what is language hacking to you? So you may know that I'm actually a computational linguist uh, and a web developer by trade, and uh, I learned how to program before I learned English as a very young child. Uh, so it's part of my way of life as well, apart from languages. And so for me, the word hacking still has the same meaning as it originally had in the IT community, which is not uh, something bad. It doesn't mean destroying anything or doing anything illegal, uh, but rather it means uh, overcoming a challenge in a smart and playful way. So doing something that uh, you're not supposed to be able to do, but you find some kind of uh, smart trick and you do it just for fun, um, that's hacking. And uh, as applied to language learning, it could be that uh, you discover or invent a new uh, mnemonic that allows you to progress faster and find a new method. You um, look at all the scientific data and you uh, find a way to, to, to speed up uh, your learning of uh, grammar uh, or of vocabulary. You use technology in as much as um, is reasonable. But mainly, you're combining what should be uh, a challenge and maybe time-consuming and boring with uh, an approach which is fun-oriented and you use some smart tricks. 
Okay. Thank you so much, Judith. That was very interesting. And uh, for everybody listening, if you want to hear more about what Judith does, uh, we'll make sure to link to all of our stuff in the show notes today. So until the next time, we'll see you soon and happy language learning. Happy language learning. At the end of every episode, Benny and I like to share a key takeaway you can take action on, something you can put into play in your language learning right away. And in this episode, Judith shares a tip that she also teaches in her script hacking books. And having just worked through her script hacking Persian book, I know the power of this technique. The tip was to read in a new script while using words you already know. Every language has borrowed words and a lot of languages have cognates. And even if they don't, you can still write words you know in another script just to get used to it. In her script hacking books, Judith uses this technique. Many of the first words you learn to read are the names of countries, states, cities, celebrities, or borrowed words. The familiarity makes figuring out what you're reading that much simpler. If you're learning a language with another script or writing system, this is a fantastic way to improve your reading and writing skills. Try it out. We hope you enjoyed this interview. We certainly enjoy chatting with Judith. Thanks for listening. And if you found this interview helpful, don't forget to leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. Until next time, happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. The theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.